I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, you use it skillfully to reveal the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And so we pray that you would continue to transform our hearts, our minds by your word and by the work of your spirit here today. Lord, that we would be a better representation of you in the world in which we live. God, that people, when they see us, would see you and your work in us. That they would see that the gospel, the good news about who you are and what you have done, that it is powerful not only for salvation, but it is powerful to change us, to transform us. So Lord, wash us by the washing of the water of your word, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed, saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I wonder if the thought has ever crossed your mind, as it certainly has mine, as you look at your life, as you consider things that maybe you have done or are in the midst of doing, you have that thought glance through your mind, man, if I don't get my act together, God is not going to put up with me much longer. (laughs) You ever had that go through? You just wonder, if I were God, I wouldn't put up with me sometimes. And you just wonder at the grace of God, the mercy of God. In our last several studies here in the book of Romans, we have been considering God's dealings with his people, the people that he had chosen, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people whom God had chosen to work through and to bless, and that through them would come a great blessing. So in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, the central focus of the passage, the theme, if you will, is God's dealing with the children of Israel. God had chosen to work with them, to bless them, but there came a time in Israel's history when God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 2. And although he's speaking about the nation of Israel there in that passage, I would, I I think it's not all that far off to guess that there's probably been some times in our lives where we have been disobedient and contrary as it relates to the Lord. And so for hundreds of years, there was that testimony upon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that although they were chosen by God and blessed by God and blessed to be a blessing, that's what Genesis chapter 12 declares. When God called Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to all peoples. And so even though that was the blessing that was upon them, they, for many, many of their years in history, they were a disobedient, stubborn, rebellious, and contrary people as it related to the things of God. And so that being the case, one might begin to think that God might give up on them. 
And that would cause a serious problem. Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul made this great statement that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And yet, observing the nation of Israel, the people that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you might think by looking at their condition, both in the time that Paul lived and now even throughout history to our day, you might think, well, it seems as though God has in some way rejected or cast them off. And if that's the case, then it calls into question those great words of Romans chapter 8, the closing words there, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. God had said to his people, the children of Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and yet most, the majority of those people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they have not received the grace of God for salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul in these chapters, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, is dealing with that issue. And he quoted that passage from Isaiah At the end of chapter 10, God speaking, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so now Paul anticipates the inevitable objection. What would be his readers' thoughts? What would be the question that they would bring up after Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah and seeing that the nation of Israel has been stubborn and contrary and rebellious towards God? Then the question comes to mind. It's Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people. Has God cast away his people? Now, of course, the the focus of Romans 9 through 11 is the Jewish people, so the his people there in that statement or that question in 11 verse 1 is the Jewish people. Has God cast them away? And that word cast away, it could also be translated rejected. Has he rejected them? I remember it's A number of years ago now, it was the week or two after, September 11th, 2001, that myself and Pastor Eric and Rick Kierstead and one of our elders, Mark Cato, we were in New York City and we were ministering there to people that were directly affected and impacted by the events of 9-11. They watched it happen, not on TV, but as they stood in the streets of New York City. One of the things that we were doing while we were there is that we were assisting with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. They had opened a prayer hotline that anyone could call if they needed prayer. And so we were down on the streets in New York City just handing out these pieces of paper that said, need prayer, and it had a phone number. It was just very simple. And while we were there, it was, I believe it was Rick Kirstead handed one to a lady that was walking by, and she took it and She walked about 10, 15 feet and turned around and came back to him. And I was standing right there and she had tears streaming down her face. And she said, God does not love us. God has rejected us. And we started to talk a little bit with her and she had Jewish heritage. And she knew about God. She knew about the God of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And she says, listen, you look at our history, the Jewish people's history, you can only come to the conclusion that God has rejected us cast off from their own land in 70 AD as the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and then destroying the whole nation of Israel. And then you follow their history for the last 2,000 years and you would be tempted to come to that conclusion that he's cast them off. He has rejected them. And so Paul, before those events even happen, he asks the question that is on the minds of some. Has God cast away or rejected his People. And Paul's immediate answer is the same answer we've seen a number of times to these inevitable questions in the book of Romans. Certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. But in saying that word, certainly not, 
in declaring that God has not rejected the Jewish people, the follow-up question would come, how do you know that? Because by outward observation, it would seem that that would be the case. It seems as though God has cast them aside. The majority of them have not received grace for salvation that only comes in Jesus Christ. And they have gone through terribly difficult things as a people for the last 2,000 years and even prior to that. So how can you be so certain that God has not cast off his people? Well, Paul gives us a couple of reasons. Number one, the promise of the scripture. If you're taking notes, you may want to jot that down. The promise of the scripture. How do we know that God has not rejected his people? We have the promise of God in the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul has been pointing us back to the Hebrew scriptures throughout this section of the book of Romans. Romans chapters 9 through 11, he quotes Isaiah, he quotes Nahum, he quotes Joel, the King David, quoting all these different prophets, Moses, the giver of the law. So now, how do we know that God has not rejected his people? Well, the promise of the scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, there we read, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make him, make them his people. So 1 Samuel chapter 12 says the Lord will not forsake his people, but not only there, we also see in Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verse 14, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his his inheritance. He will not cast off his people. Now, when we're talking about God not rejecting his people, the children who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're talking about God not rejecting them as it relates to their access to grace for salvation. Because certainly one would object, although God has promised that he will not cast off or forsake his people, if you look at the history of the people who were his people, it sure looks like at times God allowed them to be removed from his blessing. And so we need to make a distinction between the access that people have to salvation and the fact that people do suffer difficulty and tribulation. So although God has not rejected his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as it relates to access to grace for salvation, there are times throughout the history of the Jewish people, which we read about in the Old Testament, where God removed them from blessing. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 27, there it says, and the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. So there in 2 Kings, God says, I have caused the northern ten tribes of Israel to be removed from blessing because of their sin. And then he says, and I'm going to have the southern tribes of Judah be removed from blessing because of their sin. So although there were times in Israel's history where they were removed from the land of blessing, the promised land that was committed to them by God, still they have access to his grace for salvation. So how do we know that God has not rejected his people? Well, number one, the promise of scripture. Number two, if you're taking notes, the proof of salvation The promise of scripture, number one. The proof of salvation, number two. How so? Notice what Paul says here in Romans chapter 11 at the end of verse verse one. I say then, has, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. How do we know? For I, says Paul, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. 
How do we know that God has not rejected his people, the Jewish people, as it relates to their access to salvation? Well, the promise of scripture tells us that God will not reject them, but secondly, the proof that there are Jewish people who are saved. Paul was one of them. Not only Paul, but Peter, Bartholomew, Thomas, all of the early followers of Jesus were Jewish. It wasn't even until Acts chapter 10 that we see the gospel going to non-Jewish people. And so there were people, although they were the minority, a very small minority, there were people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were saved by grace through faith. And so when Paul says, has God rejected his people? The answer is clearly no, he has not. Paul continues, verse 2, Romans chapter 11. Now here in verse 2, he expands upon his earlier answer. To the question, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Note those words. They're so important in this text and in this truth. In fact, you might want to underline them in your neighbor's Bible. Just lean over, underline those words. Whom he foreknew. God has not cast away his people, rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, this word To foreknow is an interesting word. It's only used one other time in the book of Romans. Just a few chapters before. Romans chapter 8. You can turn there just briefly. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 29. There we read, For whom he, God, for whom God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, God, might be the firstborn among many brethren, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. This word foreknow is very, very important because whom God foreknows, he elects them to salvation is what Paul is saying here. So whom God foreknew, he also predestined that they would be conformed to the image of his son. Now the implication of this word being placed in Romans chapter 11, verse two, the implication is that there is a segment, a group of people who are descendants of Abraham who are elected unto salvation. There is a group of people who have Abraham as their father, although not all the nation. Paul makes it clear that there is a remnant of Jewish people who are saved. Well, the question then is, who are those whom God foreknows? If there is a segment of the Jewish population that God foreknows that will be saved, then who is this group? Well, Paul gives us the answer, and he does so by illustrating it using the Old Testament. Remember that the group of people that Paul is addressing here in this section of Romans are Jewish people, people who knew the Hebrew Scriptures. And so throughout this section, he keeps pointing back to the Hebrew Scriptures to substantiate or to validate what he's saying. And so now he points back to not the words of Isaiah or the words of Joel, Nahum, or Moses, or David, but he points back to Israel's history to the prophet Elijah. Look at this with me, if you will. Verse 2. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? When we read there, or do you not know, the idea is you should know this. 
speaking to a a Jewish group of people who knew their history, they should know this story. So Paul says, don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? Well, I don't know what the scripture says of Elijah. What's it say, Paul? Well, how that Elijah pled with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. A little bit of background's necessary here. Elijah, the prophet, he lived just about a thousand years before Jesus came in the ninth century BC. The nation of Israel there in the ninth century BC, it was divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom called Judah and the northern kingdom often called Ephraim or by just the title Israel. And Elijah, when he lived during the ninth century, he ministered among the northern kingdom, among the people of Ephraim. The northern kingdom at that time was ruled by a king by the name of Ahab, who had a wife named Jezebel, who was a real wicked broad. She's bad news. And under the leadership of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the northern ten tribes had been completely seduced into worshiping two false gods, one called Baal and the other called Asherah. And Jezebel was pretty much the leader in this whole thing of the worship of Baal and Asherah. And and she had 400 prophets of Baal and there were equally as many prophets of Asherah. And because of the sin of the people of the northern ten tribes during that day, God had sent the prophet Elijah as God would often do when his people were derailed into sin. He sent the prophet Elijah, and Elijah went promoting repentance. He's preaching repentance to the people that they would return to God. But not only was he preaching repentance, he also proclaimed punishment. He came and said, listen, if you do not return to the Lord, punishment is coming, and here's the first wave of that punishment. During the time that Elijah prophesied to the people of the northern ten tribes of Israel, God brought through the hand of Elijah a drought upon the land. Now, we live in a part of the world where we live under like a perpetual drought. And we just bring water in from the Colorado River and other parts of the world to make sure that we can water our lawns and stay alive. But listen... 2,800 years ago, 2,900 years ago, there in the land of Israel, there was no way to bring, land, bring water from another area to water the land. And the entire nation was a nation of farmers and herdsmen. And so now, three and a half years into this drought that came from God by the hand of Elijah, the people of the nation of, of Ephraim, they're upset. The economy has faltered. Now they're crying out to their king, Ahab, listen, we need a little economic stimulus here. You've got to do something. Can we relate? Ahab, you got to do something. So Ahab gathers some of his generals and says, listen, you got to track down Elijah. Elijah's been in hiding this entire time. you got to track down Elijah and bring him back. we got to demand that he get rid of this drought. He is the cause of the drought. Find him. And so they go looking for him. 1 Kings chapter 17, chapter 18. God speaks to the prophet Elijah and says, okay, now it's time for you to go back. It's time to deal with this issue. I think I've got their attention, if you will. And so Elijah reveals himself, and Ahab wants to deal with this problem. And so Elijah says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Gather the people together. Gather the nation together. Take them up to a mountaintop. This mountaintop was called Mount Carmel. Not Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel. And there they gathered the people, and the prophets of Baal were there. 
And Elijah spoke to the people in 1 Kings chapter 18. He says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. They they just sat there silently. They didn't know what to say. He said, all right, listen, we're going to test. We're going to see which God is God. All right, sounds good. Okay, here's what we're going to do. You prophets of Baal, you will set up an altar and you'll put a sacrifice on that altar and I will set up an altar to God, the one true God, and put a sacrifice on top of that altar and whichever God shows up by fire, that's God. People said, all right, far out, sounds good. So Elijah says, all right, you prophets of Baal, you go ahead, you start out. So they do, they set up their altar, they get it all ready, they put a sacrifice on it, they start dancing around, screaming to their God, crying out to him, he doesn't show up, nine o'clock, nothing. 12 o'clock, nothing. The day wears on. They're getting so frantic about this, they start cutting themselves and crying out to God. They're the first emo kids in the Bible. They're crying out to God, come on, Baal, show up. Nothing's happening. I love Elijah because there in 1 Kings chapter 18, he's not just sitting by as an idle spectator. He's mocking them. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he went on vacation. Cry a little louder. Nothing. It's the end of the day. The sun is getting ready to set. Elijah comes in and says, all right, my turn. He reorganizes the sacrifice on the altar to the one true God. He says to a group of servants there, I want you to go and draw water from the brook down the mountain, and I want you to pour it over the top of the sacrifice. And so they dug a trench around the sacrifice, and they pour all this water. It's going down. It's filling up the trench. He says, do it again. They go, and they bring more water. They pour it out over the top of it. And then he stands before the prophets of Baal, all the people gathered there, and he prays, God, so that this people might know that you are God in heaven Reveal yourself, and fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood for the sacrifice, consumes the entire altar, and everybody's in awe. The next day, well, actually, let me back up. Immediately after that, Elijah takes all the prophets of Baal and kills them, executes them. They're idolaters. They're executed. The next day, 1 Kings chapter 19 Verse 1, and Ahab, the king, told Jezebel, his wife, the queen, all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword, and then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. Now, so you got the story. God showed up. Fire from heaven. Jezebel hears this. She says, I want a message sent to Elijah. What what might that message say? Oh, you're right. Your God is God, but all is not. No, look at this. She sent a message to Elijah, and this is the message. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them tomorrow about this time. So she says this. You're a dead man. You killed my prophets. You're dead. About this time tomorrow, goner. Now, what would you think? Elijah just stood before all the people. King Ahab was there. The prophets of Baal were there. They all saw Elijah had the very power of God come down from heaven. You, you would imagine that Elijah, if he gets this message, she tweets him. <laughs> You're a dead man. You, you might imagine that he'd like retweet it and then write back and say, God's on my side. What you got? Bring it. What did he do? 1 Kings chapter 19 records for us that Elijah, verse 3, 
When he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. What? What kind of prophet are you? You just called down fire from heaven and you're running from your life from an earthly queen named Jezebel. He runs for his life. He goes down to the southern part of the nation. As the chapter unfolds, he's at the very southern part of the nation of Israel hiding in a cave. And then God comes and speaks to him. God shows up. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13, look at the very last words of the verse there. God says this to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing hiding in this cave? Elijah's response, verse 2. Or in verse 14, and Elijah said, God, I've been very zealous for you. You are the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek for my life. Elijah had grown myopic, completely self-focused, short-sighted. God, they've torn down your altars, they've rejected you, they killed all the good prophets, I'm the only one left, and now they're seeking for my life. I mean, you want to read this in like an Eeyore tone. I'm the only one. (laughs) I'm the only one left, God. And God responds, verse 15, then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, And when you arrive, you're going to anoint a new king there named Haziel in Damascus. And then you're going to anoint a new king in Israel. His name is going to be Jehu. And then you're going to anoint a new prophet there in the land of Israel. His name will be Elisha. It shall be that whosoever, verse 17, whosoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whosoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Look at this, verse 18, 1 Kings chapter 19. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, even in every mouth that has not kissed him. God says, you think you're the only one left? I have a remnant. That's literally what it says. When it says there, I have reserved, it could be translated, I have a remnant of 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And so Paul In answering this question here in Romans chapter 11, has God cast off his people? He says, certainly not. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And then now to illustrate it, to explain it, he says, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pled with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed the prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response, Romans 11, 4, what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved, or I have a remnant for myself, 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why does Paul bring this up? Why does he use this to explain this group of people that God will not cast away whom he foreknows? Why does he take us back to 1 Kings chapter 19 to explain it? I suggest to you that Paul is making the statement that those whom God foreknows is the remnant of his people. But who are the remnant of his people? They are the faithful ones that have not bowed their knee to Baal. 
And so he makes application. Verse 5, Romans 11, verse 5. He applies it to our day, to his day. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul applies a story that took place eight, nine hundred years before he was alive, 28, 2900 years before we are alive. He says, just as there was a remnant among the unbelieving and sinful people in the day of Elijah, just as there was a remnant, 7,000 that were faithful in that day, even so in the same way in our day, there is a remnant among the children of Israel that are believing, among the unbelieving sinful people, there still remains a remnant. But the question is, how does this remnant become the remnant? Among all the people that are there, how does the remnant become the remnant? He gives the answer to us there at the end of verse 5. They are a remnant according to the election of what? Say it a little louder. I didn't hear it. Grace. Grace. They are not the elect remnant according to the election of Abraham. They are not the remnant according to the election of following Moses' law. They are the remnant according to the election of grace. Salvation is not by our lineage. It is not by our law keeping. Salvation for all people is by grace through faith that not of yourselves It is the gift of God. Thus, both Jews and Gentiles become his people by grace. Would you turn in your Bibles, New Testament, to 1 Peter? First Peter chapter 2. Right after the book of James, right after the book of Hebrews, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 9. The Apostle Peter, speaking to the church, Jews and Gentiles alike, speaking to the church, he says this, but you are a chosen generation, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen, an elect generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. Why? that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look at this, verse 10. You who were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How does this people that Paul or Peter is speaking to, how do they become the people? By God's merciful grace. He says nothing in there about their lineage. He says nothing in there about the keeping of the law. He says it's by God's grace, by his mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we ought to receive. We we ought to receive punishment. We ought to receive judgment. We've not received that. Grace is receiving gifts beyond not receiving what we ought to receive. Even so at this present time, Romans 11, verse 5, even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 6, and if it is by grace, 
If salvation is by grace, verse 6, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. So if there is anything, if there was anything that could bring about your righteousness or my righteousness apart from the grace of God, if there was anything that could justify us outside of his grace, then the cross of Christ was unnecessary. If we could be made righteous by our descent from a righteous individual like Abraham, or if we could be made righteous by our keeping of God's law, then there is no reason for Jesus to die on the cross. But you, you probably remember, there on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to his Father in heaven. He says three times, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And three times the heavens were silent because there was no other way. He's the only way for salvation, for grace. So the New Testament, the Bible divided into an Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, New Testament. The New Testament emphasizes, throughout the New Testament, it emphasizes this truth, that salvation is by grace obtained by faith and not by anything else. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Being justified, that is made righteous, being made righteous freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 3, verse 7, there Paul says, That having been justified, made righteous by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So throughout the New Testament, there is this truth proclaimed that salvation is by grace. Not only that, throughout the New Testament, we also see it emphasized that there is no work that you and I can do to make ourselves right with God. Salvation is all of grace, it's none of our works. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, made righteous in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. Why? For the just shall live by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so throughout the New Testament, we see these truths proclaimed. Salvation is all of grace and none of works, but it's not just, it's not just unique to the New Testament. The Old Testament also, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, there we read, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He received righteousness from God, justified. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, there Habakkuk proclaims the just, those who will be righteous, the just shall live by faith. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, let me read to you, and as I do, I want you to notice how many times God says, I will. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verse 20, 25, then God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all the filthiness of your, of, and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. I will, I will, I will, God says. What do we see in that? It's God's working and not ours. Those who will be the foreknown remnant are those who are elect of grace. 
Well, Paul continues, verse 7, Romans chapter 11. What then? What should we say to this? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, says Paul. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Begs the question, what did it seek for? Well, look at Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Romans 9, verse 30 answers the question, what was it that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were seeking for? Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. And so Paul concludes here in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What was Israel looking for that they have not found? They were looking to make themselves righteous by their keeping of the law or by their lineage from Abraham. But they still haven't found what they're looking for. Reminds me of a song. They still haven't found what they're looking for. And this is not just Israel. Anyone looking to make themselves righteous by whatever lineage they have or by their keeping of some moral code or ethic will never find righteousness. Why? Because by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be made righteous before God. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves righteous. So Israel has not found what it is sought for. Paul continues, verse 7 in the middle of the verse. But the elect... The elect have obtained it. Those who are elect according to the election of grace have obtained it. What have they obtained? Well, again, back to chapter 9, verse 30. They have attained to righteousness. They've attained to righteousness. They have a right standing with Almighty God because it's by His grace and not by their works. So Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. You see, there is a remnant. As Paul points out with the illustration from 1 Kings chapter 19, there is a remnant among those who have Jewish heritage. We have some people in our own church who have Jewish heritage, and they are saved by grace in Jesus Christ. There is a remnant. But sadly, the larger majority of the Jewish people They have been, Paul says here, they've been blinded. Another word for blinded there, and actually a better translation, is they have been hardened. Hardened. And the word that is translated blinded in some English translations, but hardened in other English translations, in the original language, it speaks of hardening like that of a callus. Anybody in here ever play guitar? Lift up your hand, guitar players. We'd love to see you later. We'd love for you to help out with the worship team. Anyway. (laughs) How many of you have tried to play guitar and you quit? Look at that, much more. I have a guitar in my office. People come in my office, they say, you play guitar? I go, no, not really. But I've tried. And I always get to this point, maybe you've experienced this, where my fingers hurt so bad I give up. And every guitar player always says, oh, you just have to push a little bit further till you get calluses, right? And then it doesn't hurt so much. Why? Because you've built up this hardened layer over the tips of your fingers that from hitting the strings against the fretboards that it no longer hurts anymore. Not because you've killed the nerves there, but you've covered over them with calluses. 
And Paul specifically uses this word here in this verse when he says, the rest of them, the majority of the children of Israel, they are calloused. And then he illustrates with Scripture. Again, he points back to the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Isaiah and King David in verses 8 and 9. Just as it is written, Isaiah chapter 29, God has given them, the children of Israel, a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this day. To this day. Isaiah 29, verse 10. Verse 9, Romans chapter 11. And King David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. And they bow down their back always. Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Now, some people, when reading these verses that Paul uses to illustrate the point of some people being hardened and calloused, they look at these verses and they see the almighty sovereign hand of God coming in and saying, you are blind and you'll never be able to see because I've decreed it. Some see that sovereign nature of God in these verses, but in doing so, you fail to see the context from which these verses were pulled in Isaiah chapter 29. You see, when God spoke those words through the prophet Isaiah, it was after hundreds and hundreds of years of God reaching out to his people, pleading them to them with the gospel of grace that they would repent and return to him. And then after they had hardened their hearts themselves, God allowed them to be blinded that they would no longer see. And so the reality is that the majority of those who call themselves Jews, who descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the majority of them today are blinded and they don't recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and the only Savior of the world. And the only thing that will open their eyes is the very thing that the prophet Zechariah told us that we'll be looking at in later verses of Romans chapter 11. It's the very thing that happened to the Apostle Paul. He himself, a Jewish man, a Pharisee, a religious leader among the Jews on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, there he saw the risen Lord. And just a few days later, something fell from his eyes, the scripture says, like scales. The callousness fell away from him. Why? He, like Zechariah prophesied, he looked on him whom he had pierced. He looked upon the pierced, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And his eyes were open and the callous fell from his heart. His ears understood for the first time the words of eternal life, the gospel of grace. You see, there are people who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that have been given so great, such great blessings. Paul speaks about those blessings at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, that they were the children of Israel that pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the service of God, the promises of whom the fathers came and according through whom came Christ. They had all these great blessings afforded them, accounted to them, and yet the majority of them to this day are unbelieving and blinded. Their hearts are hard towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way for salvation to come for them is for them to look on him whom they have pierced. The one who Romans chapter 9 tells us they stumbled at. Romans 9 verse 33, it says they stumbled Stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. 
Well, then the question comes, and we'll close with this. How then do we share the gospel with someone who has a calloused heart and hardened ears? How do we share the gospel specifically with this text with people who are of a Jewish background, who have a blindness, a veil over their minds? Well, we're going to see as we continue in our study next time, verse 13. This is just a preview of coming attractions. Romans chapter 11, verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. I speak to you Gentiles and I say, this is how you share the gospel with someone who's hardened towards the gospel. They have to see the proof of the power of the gospel in your life. It cannot just be words. I remember a, a lady in our fellowship once telling me about how she was sharing the gospel with a Jewish friend of hers and he became incredibly offended because she tried to school him on, her un, on his understanding of the Old Testament. It's not going to be words in sharing the gospel with someone who's been hardened by the gospel. They're inoculated to the gospel because they've heard it so much and they've hardened their heart to it. They have to see the power of the gospel in you and in me. It has to be evident. Our lives must provoke people to jealousy, that they yearn for what we have. Well, what do we have? Well, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. They should see in us the power of the risen Lord. Would to God that that's what people in our neighborhoods would see. Would to God that the church would be so so incredibly different from what is seen in the world. Amen? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for your great grace. It's clear, Lord, that it is because of your grace that we are able to come before you, to stand before you, it's because of your great grace and your mercy that we can be your people. And Lord, it's our desire that other people who don't know you yet would become your people because you would shine through our lives. Lord, help us to reflect your grace and your glory to those who don't know you. We pray for those who are Jewish, Lord, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would look on you, Jesus, whom they pierced come to faith just as we have. Lord, we thank you that it's not by anything that we have done that you've made us righteous, but by your great grace. Use us to be ambassadors of that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.